You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I come to preach to you this morning on the subject, what did you expect? And if I were to give it a formal title, it would be something like Mission and the Mess of Community. <laughs> what did you expect? In the English language, what, do you, what did you expect, of course, is a rhetorical question. And in English, when we say a question is rhetorical, we mean there's a statement embedded within the question. And in this instance, I think it means something like, hey, I think you assumed the wrong thing about the experience you were about to have. So someone says, man, traffic is bad today. And I say, it's DC on the Beltway at 4 p.m. on a Friday. What did you expect? My kid touches a hot pan after I told them, don't touch the hot pan. And they go, ah, it's hot. And I say, well, what, yeah, what'd you expect? Those are the humorous, slightly cynical, slightly I told you so, jaded, unempathetic in, uh, of way of using that phrase. But I think there's a more serious way to use that question. What did you expect? Somebody becomes a Christian and finds that they don't instantly find transformation in their life. <laughs> They're still struggling with addictions. They're still struggling in relationships and vices that are messing up their life. Well, what did you expect? Another person gets married and they realize that the hallmark channelification picture of marriage or Instagram influencer picture of marriage uh, isn't quite true, and that marital bliss is far more complicated, involves a lot more conflict, hurt, shame, blame, heartache, misunderstanding. What did you expect? Another person joins the church, <laughs> and they're shocked to find actual human beings there. <laughs> Pastors and leaders who avoid conflict, who aren't great at communication, who might be emotionally unavailable or immature, who make assumptions, who gossip, who sin, what did you expect? Hmm. The fascinating thing about the Christian faith is within the scriptures that you would expect that if you're spreading the gospel of this brand new movement of life transformation and you're wanting to get people involved and join the movement, you would paint the picture of a community that is perfectly unified, perfectly put together, aligned in mission, vision, values, purpose, strategy. You'd expect the Bible to paint that sort of picture of Christian communities where you say, that's perfect, I'm in. <laughs> but very interestingly, the whole entire Bible and our chapter at hand today, do not paint that kind of picture about human community. What Acts 15 shows us, what the text shows us, is that the kingdom of God, like Jesus himself, incarnates among real, actual, raw human beings with a backstory, with baggage, with skeletons in the closets, with deeply formed cultural backgrounds and philosophies about life. And wouldn't you know it, when, when the kingdom of God comes into this ancient Mediterranean world, it comes into some real and raw cultural conflicts. We've been talking about that a lot. Some people would prefer a story about the church where truth drops down. Instantly, there is unanimity about every little thing. But that would be a fantasy. That would not be reality. Because God chooses to redeem real people, not fake ones. 
God chooses to create real communities, not fake ones. Not airbrushed, filtered Instagram picture of life, but the real thing. And Acts 15 paints a picture of a community that is in process together. A group of people who are sharing strong, divergent views together. A group of people who are sharing power together. And an imperfect people holding to a perfect Savior together. I simply want to walk through the text in two parts today. First, the text shows us courageous conflict. And lastly, it'll show us compassionate conviction. All right? And this is, these are two key things about living in community together. Courageous conflict and compassionate conviction. Let's keep in mind the storyline of where we are in Acts chapter 15. If you've been coming along with us throughout the Sundays a few weeks ago, I looked at Acts chapter 10. That's what we preached together today uh, a few weeks ago, which was a huge moment in the book of Acts because for the first time, a real authentic Gentile Roman with their diets and uncircumcision and complete unJewishness received the Holy Spirit and was baptized in the church. It was shocking to the leaders of the church at the time. It was shocking to Peter, as we saw. And he went back and reported to the church in Jerusalem, to his largely Jewish brothers and sisters in the faith, what had happened. And a lot of them praised God for what had happened, but not all of them were enthusiastic. And here we are, if you can believe it, eight to ten years later in the narrative of the book of Acts. So by the time the Jerusalem council happens, that episode with Cornelius and the Gentiles, that was eight or ten years ago. And folks still are not on the same page. There are those Jewish Christians who are much more cautious of embracing this kind of vision of change. So much so that some of these Jewish Christians from Jerusalem have gone out as ministers. They've gone up into Syria, Samaria, other parts uh, of this Mediterranean world. But they are preaching an altered gospel. And they're saying to the people, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And what you have to hear is not just the act of circumcision, but the cultural identity that came along with Judaism. These ministers are saying, unless you become culturally Jewish, you have no place in the kingdom of God. You must become like us in every way. And of course, their course runs smack dab into the middle of Paul and Barnabas, who are preaching the opposite. <laughs> they are saying, in effect, you do not have to be circumcised. You do not have to become culturally Jewish. You do not have to follow the dietary laws. You must simply believe in this one. And receive salvation as a gift in his name. And so when their paths collide, Luke tells us in his very Luke kind of measured way, there was no small dissension and debate. A.K.A. they were having some serious fights about this issue. They both believed in Jesus. They both were proclaiming the kingdom of God, but there was deep conflict I like how Eugene Peterson uh, translates the verse. He says, Paul and Barnabas were up on their feet at once in fierce protest. Because this Greek word, uh, dissension, strife, it can also mean protest, revolt, riot. So this is what's happening in the community. Things are not uh, altogether happy at all. So what is the solution when you face this kind of fierce disagreement? The text shows us that the solution is courageous conflict. 
If we were playing according to the playbook we might expect from our culture, or we might expect from the history of Christianity, we might expect Paul to be like, man, forget y'all backwards, folks. I'm going to go start the new St. Paul Church of the Uncircumcision, True Apostles of Christ denomination. But their first resort is not divide and conquer, it is rather unite and confer. So they get everyone together back in the motherland, Jerusalem. At this moment in history, Jerusalem is the center of power, the center of the Christian movement. And most members of this movement are Jewish. So this is the center of influence and, and power. And so all the apostles and the elders are there. Apostles meaning those who were with Jesus, except for Judas. And uh, remember, Judas was replaced by Matthias in Acts chapter 1. Come on, Bible study people. I knew y'all knew that. I knew y'all remembered. And all the elders. And the elders are the representative leaders from each of those different communities and congregations. They're all getting together because courageous conflict means coming to the table together. And what we see in the text is that in courageous conflict, power is shared Power and influence are shared. you got to take note of something right off the bat. When the controversy is confronted, everyone comes together in an equal way. And I might just do something in this sermon that I rarely do in a sermon and that I've never done, which is mention that this community of faith is called a Presbyterian church. All right? <laughs> I'm going to talk about it. Because this passage is one of the main inspirations for the way that the Presbyterian tradition thinks about power and authority in the church. Because the word elders in Greek is presbyteroi. Does that sound like something? Sounds like Presbyterian. And so in our text today, we see that there's an assembly of presbyteroi, of representative leaders. It's a system of shaping power in the church where there is mutual obligation and accountability. And listen, just as the passage shows us today, that doesn't mean that things are without sin. It doesn't mean that things are always pretty. In fact, I can tell you from my Presbyterian experience, things are very dysfunctional. But the passage shows us the wisdom of distributing power among a group of people who can reach consensus in difficult circumstances. Amen? I might also tell you that the United States government, with all of its dysfunction... <laughs> is designed off Presbyterian principles, actually. Checks and balances, branches of government. Within the structure, here is the expectation and the assumption that power is not most wisely trusted in the hands of a few at the top or one dude at the congregational bottom, but is shared among rec representative leaders. And why that's important should be plainly obvious to those of us who have read history or watched the news. Many pastors and church leaders have been given free reign to exercise authority with no mutual accountability, right? There's been abuse. There's been deception. There's been manipulation. All of it. All of us. So if I can just speak contextually here for a moment, at Grace Mosaic, there are very few things at this church that get decided outside of a diverse group of people meeting in a room and talking about things, hashing things out. Does that make them slower? Yes. Does that make them less efficient? Yes. But does it make it wiser and more loving? Yes. Men and women, elders and shepherdesses, deacons and deaconesses coming to as much unity as possible in the midst of difference. Different cultures, different genders, different philosophies, different life experiences. 
This cuts so strongly, this is its own sermon, it cuts so strongly against the grain of our modern individualistic culture. Where I am to be the arbiter of my fate. I'm supposed to look inside and find my way and can't nobody tell me what I'm supposed to do. That is not the vision of power over your life shared with the scriptures. Proverbs says, with an abundance of counselor, there is, counselors, there is wisdom. So if you have a conflict in your life, you're trying to make a decision in your life, don't go at it alone. Lean into friendships. Lean into communities of mutual accountability. Seek out help. So what should we expect from a story in this book where you put this diverse group of people together in a room together? What did you expect? So they get together, and then in verse 7 it says, after there had been much debate. (laughs) Read between the lines here. People are arguing all morning long. They're arguing about this circumcision question. They're arguing about these cultural realities. And finally, Peter gets up to give his speech. He starts with a testimony. He shares with a testimony about what God has showed him back eight to ten years ago with Cornelius. That God shows no partiality. Jewish, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, pork eating, non-pork eating are saved how? By grace. Peter says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. And and see, Peter's fellow church leaders, maybe they're close friends of his. Maybe even some of them are family members of him. But Peter is respected among the Pharisee party. And the Pharisee party is not just some bigoted group of Jewish people as anti-Semitic readings of the text have, have falsely pushed all throughout church history. No, first of all, you got to understand everyone in this room pretty much is ethnically Jewish. Second of all, the Pharisees within the tradition are the people who want to follow the scriptures. They are Bible people. And what Peter is saying, that the law, though it, has, though it is good, though the law of God is good, it has limits. The law, with all of its requirements, cannot save anybody because no one can keep the law perfectly. This is what's going to be worked out in the New Testament over and over again. So Peter says, why are you putting God to the test? Because God's already shown him what the deal is with the law. And he says, why are you putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to to bear? He's saying, no, there is no merit requirement to receive this life that God offers. It's a grace. And the word grace in the New Testament means gift. It's a gift freely given to those who are not, not deserving. Not to one culture, but to all cultures. When Paul himself received the gift, he was on the back of a horse ready to go stone some Christians. When Peter received the gift of grace, he had betrayed the Lord and was on the side of a beach. It's a gift. We are never to put anyone beyond the reach of the gift giver or the grace giver, even those who are being ungracious and don't quite get it yet. Even those who are at the 101 level of the kingdom when we want them to be at the 301 or 401 level. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, right? Not a result of works. And what's the conclusion? So that no one may boast. See, if a community remains aligned around the grace of God received by faith in the midst of our complete need of God's mercy, then all ammunition for our boasting, our bitterness, our contempt is taken away. All need for prideful boasting is nullified because nothing destroys community like prideful boasting, 
like bitterness of heart that extends no grace. And that's what Peter is saying. Peter is taking the the whole community back to the central things here. Because this whole debate around circumcision is really a debate about this. What is the grace of God like? How free is it? What do you have to do to get it? How good does your past have to be? How good does your, quote, culture have to be? Peter is saying there is no requirements at the door. It's free. Free, free. Paul and Barnabas then back Peter up by saying, yep, we've seen the same thing out on the road, ministering to Gentiles, that God hasn't shown any partiality. God has poured out his spirit on all sorts of people. Even the people we thought were unclean, God poured his spirit out. So that's courageous conflict. Controversy is laid bare. Everyone gets to see it for what it is. You don't have people whispering behind each other's back going, oh, can you believe how ridiculous the Pharisees are? Ugh, so tired of them. No, they bring it all to the table. They lay it all on the table. They've stayed at the table long enough to hear not just a caricature of what another person believes, but to actually listen to what that person believes. That's what we have to do in community as Christians is stay at the table long enough to hear you out. You speak, I speak, I listen. I don't buy into a caricature of you or what you are saying. I lean into you. Most communities in the world do not operate in this way. Most communities in the world are places of avoiding this kind of courageous conflict through simmering bitterness, through resentment, through gossip. But now, Brother James is going to get up and display for us a way forward within this disagreement. He's going to show us compassionate conviction that resolves a conflict in a way that allows fundamental unity to be preserved even though there's not unanimity, there's not uniformity, all right? Compassionate conviction. James gets up and he builds off of what Peter has said. He uses Peter's Jewish name, Simeon, which he does intentionally because remember, he's trying to engender trust from these hardliner Pharisee parties, right? He says, this is what Peter has seen, and God is claiming a people for his name. James' solution involves several convictions, and all of them under the conviction of compassionate love. What what are his convictions? First, James has a conviction around Scripture. Don't miss that. Because here's what James does. He says, all right, This is Peter's experience. Peter has told you his testimony, but I'm going to back up his experience and his testimony with something better. So where does James go? He goes to the word of God. He backs up Peter's experience, experiential word with the word. He goes back to Amos chapter 9. He goes back to Isaiah 45. He goes to Jeremiah chapter 12. He's quoting scriptures from all over the place. So where did the early church go to to work through their complicated issues of faith and doctrine? Where'd they go? They went to the Bible. (laughs) They believed in a word higher than their own. They didn't just figure things out based on political power, as is often painted by people who really misunderstand history, and they say, well, Christianity was was, uh, was invented by Constantine. Please don't believe the peoples. Please don't believe the peoples. What we see in the early church is that they trusted an authoritative word that had been revealed by the Holy Spirit. Can I back that up again for you? In Peter's own letter, the letter of 2 Peter, he opens up in the first chapter by saying, here's my experience of Jesus. Here's what I've seen. 
I can tell you this, that God is real, that Jesus is real. I saw it with my own eyes. But then he says, we have something more sure than my own testimony. And that is the prophecy of Scripture. Knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by who? By the Holy Spirit. So when it comes to theological and ethical disagreement in communities, in churches, in your life, you have to be able to agree on a standard by which you can disagree with somebody else. Otherwise, you can't have no debate in the church. What is our authority? And I'm going to get, again, real Presbyterian here and, will, and real Reformed Christian and say sola scriptura. Ultimately, you've got to decide where the buck stops when you're having a conversation. How do you find the truth? It is by studying and interpreting scripture in community. That's why later when they write a letter and they send that letter to the Gentiles, they say this. I didn't read this verse. They say, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit to not lay a greater burden on you than you can bear. How do they know what the Holy Spirit wants? The word of God. This is scripture being understood in community. So James, as he works through this conflict, decides This is a first-order conviction that there is Scripture and that it's trustworthy. Secondly, he has a conviction around the gospel and the centrality of it. James argues that the Gentiles who turn to faith in God should not be burdened with issues of the law. When it comes to the fundamental matter of salvation, of who gets into the kingdom of God, of how they access the life of Jesus Christ, Both James and Paul and Peter are unified and they will not budge on this point, right? They have a conviction and they're not going to go soft on it. They're going to be like an iron pillar here. They're going to continue to argue this point throughout the rest of the New Testament and it's going to get challenged over and over and over again. And the church has to work through this as they have to work through it in every age. What is the gospel? The gospel is grace. The gospel is gift. I'm not going to restrict it to a certain culture. I'm not going to restrict it to a certain prerequisite behavior. I'm not going to restrict it to all sorts of man-made schemes about who we decide is in and who we decide is out. I'm not the gatekeeper. God is the gatekeeper, and he gives everything as a gift. It's all grace. It's all grace. And once you are in the kingdom of God, of course, there is a new life granted to you also by God's grace which results in a transformed, ethical, relational, personal life. Salvation is a life, and it's a gift. What the passage shows us and what we're getting to is that when Christians disagree about things, there are first-order disagreements and there are lesser-order disagreements. And you got to have the wisdom of Scripture and the wisdom of community to know the difference. But what we see here is that they're going to make a modification on something, and I'm going to explain that in in a minute. But what they are not modifying is a first-order issue, the kingdom of God, salvation, salvation by grace through faith. Lastly, all of this conviction that James has, a conviction of Scripture, a conviction of the gospel, it is all enveloped by one even higher conviction. And you know what that is? The conviction of love. Even in the way James makes his speech, there is love shown. He's addressing the family of faith in familial terms. He says, brothers. Everyone in this room is a believer. Our society likes to liken respectful familial speech to weakness and passivity. 
And if one disagrees with gentle speech ethics, then one is espousing tone policing. But what's going on here, I want you to see, is both intense tone and passion mixed with respect and love and address. You don't have to choose either or. I understand the term tone policing. I get it. I think it has a legitimate usage. People should be able to be angry. People should be able to come into a space with a strong conviction and disagree and protest. That's already happened, right? But I can back this over and over again up with Scripture all the time. But even within conflict, speech is to be gracious. It's to be seasoned with salt, not giving over to the devouring force of anger and rage and dehumanization. And I think among many issues that we have to deal with in modern life, especially of those who are influenced very strongly by the 140-character text box, if you know what I'm saying, is that we don't bring our speech in line with the love of God. We think we should be able to say whatever we want. That's not God's perspective. Proverbs says that the one who is slow to anger is mightier than a one who conquers a city. And again, as we've seen it, Love and speech doesn't mean sacrificing convictions. It means holding your convictions together in community in love. So James is convicted along with Peter and Paul that they cannot trouble the souls of the Gentiles. They are not going to put the burden of circumcision over the Gentiles. And I have to say, I I bet the Gentiles are very grateful for this. Because if anything, I don't think they want to go through circumcision. You know what I'm saying? Can I just... Yeah, bring that up a little bit. <laughs> so when they send the letter and later the Gentiles are encouraged, I think this is probably part of the reason because uh, they were looking at a pretty daunting ceremony to have to go through. And James is saying, nope, no circumcision, no culturally bound law. They don't have to become culturally Jewish to get into the kingdom. But then there's this odd verse, isn't there? Right? Come on, somebody. Somebody say, sometimes the Bible confuses you. It's Okay. Because then James says, I do have one thing to ask of the Gentiles, or several things. You should abstain from the things polluted by idols. You should abstain from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has been read in every city by those who proclaim them. All right? First of all, what James is saying is that this is not a first order matter. He's already settled the first order matter circumcision. This isn't about who gets into the kingdom of God. This is about the life that becomes of one who claims the kingdom of God. Everything in James' list you have to understand specifically has to do with the whole pagan temple system that many of these Gentiles have converted out of. They were part of different religions to different gods, going to different church services, engaging in temple prostitution, which was a part of most of the temples, Uh, meat sacrificed with blood, all of this stuff. There were animal sacrifices, consuming the blood. And for James and Jewish believers, these things were deeply problematic, spiritually, religiously, culturally, and viscerally. But I don't think this prohibition from James is primarily about the comfort of those who are inside that room there. I want to say that this conviction, enveloped under love, is about formation and it's about mission. First, it's about the formation of the Gentiles because the Jewish Christians are concerned for their Gentile brothers and sisters because people don't just come out of another faith instantly. And what they're saying is, my Gentile brothers and sisters, I think it would be wise for you to refrain 
from participating in the culture of the pagan cult sacrifice world. Because you might find that you're slipping back into it. You might find that when the going gets tough and you need financial assistance in your life or some, some desperate thing comes up in your life, you might want to go back to the temple and offer a sacrifice and engage in the system. And the Jewish believers, I think wisely, are saying to their Gentile brothers and sisters, now y'all hold up here. If you're wise, you will abstain from these things. Give it a break. So, so it's a compassionate conviction around formation. Because love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. And sometimes in community, you have to look after the formation of your brothers and sisters and say, you don't need to do that. You don't need to go there. It's not saying it's an absolute law, right? It's saying this is what is wise. But I also think, and this is the prevailing reason for James' uh, decision, and I think you really, really have to see this. It's about mission. Why do I say that? Because of verse 21. James is saying that Jewish people across the Mediterranean world have read Moses for ages and still read him every single Sunday. Their mindset culturally is that these animal sacrifices and everything having to do with Gentile religion is unclean, is harmful, and is against God's will. James is saying, all right, you are in the kingdom of God, but don't go around causing unnecessary confusion and offense. Because these Jewish believers in this room want to see their Jewish brothers and sisters saved. They want to see them come to know the Messiah. It's already challenging enough when they're not circumcised and they're talking about uh, not becoming culturally Jewish. And James is saying, don't make our life even harder. The community is called to love and sacrifice for missional reasons. They're called to lower the missional and cultural barriers for the sake of their neighbors. It's not about what the Gentiles have a right to do. It's not about some absolute law. It's about the law of love. And James is saying, I want you to abstain from these behaviors because it's more loving to your Jewish neighbors. Do y'all hear that? And this whole dynamic is going to be explored over and over again in the New Testament. If you want bonus reading, go read 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Go read Romans 14. And Paul is going to work this out within real communities of Jewish and Gentile believers. And here's what he's going to say. He's going to say this. He's going to say, listen, there is no such thing as idols. They're fake. There's one God. So if you are receiving meat sacrificed to idol with thanksgiving and you're praising God for it, it's clean. All food is clean. We've already settled that. But if you are around Gentile pagan believers who see what you're doing and think it's like right to engage in the religious system or you're around Jewish people for whom that's going to be very disturbing, then don't do it. Paul says you have to sacrifice what you have the right to do for what you should do for the sake of your brothers and sisters. And if there's a point that is woo challenging in modern life, because we love to claim everything we have a right to do. I want to talk the way I want to talk. I want to walk the way I want to walk. I want to go where I want to go. Don't get in my way. Don't impose on me. That is not the ethic of community in the New Testament. The New Testament says we are constrained by love. Do not cause a brother or sister to stumble. There's all sorts of ways this works out in community, right? How you use your language, what kind of practices you engage in, how much you drink, uh, how much you cuss. <laughs> About some of these things, there is no absolute law. But you know when it affects your brothers and sisters. And the scripture is calling you to be sensitive in love. Paul 
he says this to the Corinthians. He says, I had every right to demand payment from you for my ministry because it's right that a pastor should be paid for ministry. But because you're very confused about pastors and teachers and money, I'm choosing not to get paid by you. I have a right to get paid, but I, he says, I will endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You see this ethic being worked out here in Acts 15. They're calling the Gentiles to endure abstaining from these things so that they don't put obstacles in the way of other people. Does that make sense? That's what compassionate conviction means. It is to balance your convictions in compassion and to envelop all things in love. All of this fundamental ethic for the church in Acts 15 and later on was birthed out of none other than the witness of Jesus Christ himself. Because Jesus had all the rights and privileges beyond comparison. He was the royal divine son of God. He could call down armies and consume his enemies, but he emptied himself for the sake of love and for the sake of salvation. So in community, and particularly in the mess of community, we are to serve one another. We are to love one another and empty ourselves, not have to demand absolute allegiance to everything we have a right to, everything we believe to be true. It is to empty one for one another in mutual love and obligation, in the midst of conflicts, in the midst of confusions, in the midst of weaknesses. The Bible says to bear one another's burdens because Jesus bore our burdens. So we are to show all grace freely because he gave free grace. This is what's being worked out in the community. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, a gift for us today. Amen. Let us pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.